Well, friends, as we have been mentioning often the Advent season that we find ourselves in and anticipating uh, the next few weeks as we remember specifically the incarnation of Christ and God's mercy, I want to draw your attention tonight to a a different but similar instance in the Scriptures where God blessed His people with a Deliverer who came through some very unexpected means, uh, particularly through a woman who was not expected to be with child. Uh, I want us to look at 1 Samuel chapter 1 tonight. Uh, But before we look at that together, and we'll read it together, uh, let's, let's pray once more and, uh, and ask God for His help. Our Father in heaven, uh, we're going to give our attention to Your Word now. Uh, it, is, uh, it is very old. These events happened uh, long before our lifetime and our experience. And we need Your help, Lord, to understand We need your help to understand the narrative, the text. We need your help to apply these things to our lives. We need your help to be instructed. We know that you, the living God, you disclose your mind to us in your word. And we pray that you would open our eyes, open our ears to know your thoughts, to know the truth tonight, and that you use this account to do so. We thank you for your word. And we pray, O God, that you would use it for the purpose for which you've given it. That you would sanctify us by your truth. We know that your word is truth. Glorify Jesus Christ in us, we pray. In his name, amen. Amen. Well, what we're going to do this evening, friends, is we are going to uh, look at all of 1 Samuel chapter 1. It's a, a well-known story to many of us who grew up in the church. Uh, this is the account of Samuel's birth, more specifically what happens with Samuel's mother uh, in the, the days uh, and years before his birth, and then what happens when he is given over by his mother Hannah to the Lord. And I want to read the, the whole chapter. It's 28 verses. Um, but it struck me that it would be inappropriate for me to spend 40 minutes talking about it and not actually read it to you. So, uh, so let's read it together here. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 1. <clears throat> there was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroam, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zoph, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, the name of the other, Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. 
So it went on year after year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they'd eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. <clears throat> As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Now, Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you be on, go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have, neither, I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew his, Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a, child, bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. <clears throat> the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vows. But Hannah did not go up. For she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, now Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. <clears throat> and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. Now, this, this account, these events took place... Uh, in a very difficult time in Israel's history. The, the book immediately preceding it in the Scriptures is Ruth, uh, but before that we've got Judges. And you remember how Judges ends. Things deteriorate rapidly in the life of Israel in this season. They've, they've come 
through the wilderness, they've entered into the promised land, and things have really fallen apart in the generations since then. There are some little blips of hope and encouragement on the radar, like Ruth and that account there with Boaz and Naomi, but by and large, things are very dark. And the Lord, as is His way, He uses a very unexpected means to bring about a deliverer here. He does so for a variety of reasons, for our good and for His glory ultimately. Uh, but here in 1 Samuel, when the tide really begins to turn in terms of the fortune of Israel and God's providence, the story focuses on this, this woman from a rural area who is unable to bear a child and is distraught, probably depressed at this point about it. An unlikely place for deliverance to begin. But we also see in this story a remarkable sort of faith demonstrated in this woman. And we see a, an outright miraculous deliverance and a deliverance that far outstrips even what was asked for and what was expected when Samuel comes. Now what I'd like for us to do tonight, and since I'm kind of in charge, this is what we will do. Uh, we're going to, to go through the text and I want to make some comments, some explanatory notes to help us sort of get a sense for what's going on. And then I want to point out to you four uh, relatively brief lessons that we learned from the text, four observations to make principles that will help us understand who we are, who God is, and what it looks like to walk as His disciples in faith in the world. So the first thing we'll do, uh, I want us to look at the story again, and I want to make some comments as we, as we go along here. Uh, <clears throat> the account begins with this man Elkanah. And he had two wives, and one of them uh, was unable to have children. She was barren. Now, I think we can probably assume from the text and the way, the way these wives are ordered when they're listed that this is probably his first wife, Hannah. She is clearly dear to him, but she is she's unable to have children. Now, despite the fact that uh, this man has these, these two wives. He is evidently a relatively pious man, unlike many in Israel at this time. And it was his practice to go up annually to worship. Verse 3, he used to go up year by year from his city to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. Uh, Elkanah is in the same vein as so many of the patriarchs that we read about in the Old Testament, so many characters in Old Testament narrative and new, he's kind of a mixed bag, isn't he? He's a little bit of a mess. <laughs> but he is a worshiper of the Lord. And he rightly takes his family with him to go up and worship. And as part of that worship annually, he would give portions to his family members to offer before the Lord and then on the day of the sacrifice, they would feast together. That was the, that was the practice. Uh, and he gave, as was the practice then, evidently portions according to the number of children uh, to, his, to his wives. Uh, a, a wife who had 
uh, many children was, uh, was given more to sacrifice. Right? It was an honor to her. Verse 5 reads, But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And if you look at the footnote there, probably most of you have a footnote there, and the footnote will say something like, the meaning of this is uncertain. And in the Septuagint we read, although he loved Hannah, he would give Hannah only one portion because the Lord had closed her womb. Uh, it is difficult to translate uh, the original text there. Did Elkanah give his wife a double portion? Did he give her a single portion? Something The original text refers to... Uh, refers to animals by the number of their nostrils. So it's difficult to tell exactly what's going on here. Um, but the, whether it is that, that she received a single portion because she had no children, or whether Elkanah in his love for her gave her a double portion, the point is clearly that he loved Hannah dearly because he loved her though the Lord had closed her womb. And yet... Though she is beloved by her husband, she is provoked by this person whom the text refers to as her rival. Right? This is Elkanah's other wife, Peninnah, who has all the children. And year after year, when the time comes for them to worship and to go up to Shiloh, this time for worship becomes an occasion for mockery, for misery, for Hannah, because she is provoked uh, by Penina when they go up. And that, that friends, is a, uh, that's a method the devil even uses today, right? To, to turn the occasion for worship into a time of misery by causing strife among his people, right? Hannah, provoked, would weep and she would not eat. Year after year, this happened. Uh, her heart did not grow hard, though. She, weep, she wept and she would not eat. She, <clears throat> in her pain and her, her suffering, she, she lost her appetite. Now, Elkanah, well-meaning, tender-hearted, uh, relatively insensitive, tries to comfort his wife. Why are you weeping? He knows why she's weeping. What's the matter with you? Are, are I not more to you than ten sons? Well, obviously not, Elkanah. You are not more to her than ten sons. I, I will just make a, a side note here. It's, it's little things like this that convince me of the inspiration and the, the, the validity of the Scriptures. This is what a guy would really say. You know, he, this, this, is, this is not Beowulf. You know, this, this, is, this is a fellow trying to fix his wife. Right, which is unfortunately uh, far too often the way that we do things. There's a problem, well, let me fix it. Let me tell you something and I'll straighten you out. Right? That's what Elkanah is trying to do, and she is not straightened out. She is grieved. Verse 9, though, in her misery, she goes to pray. After having eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. And she goes to the temple where, where Eli is. She seeks comfort in the Lord. And again, this is not the major point that I want to make here, but all friends, Hannah is an example for us there. In your times of distress, seek comfort in the Lord. Do, do not seek comfort in Netflix. 
Do not seek comfort in spending money. Do not seek comfort in eating food or doing whatever it is. Do, do not seek comfort for your soul in the things of the world. To be numbed for a moment. Right? But only the Lord ministers to the heart. Only the Lord can deal with the pain of the heart. And Hannah is absolutely right. She goes to the Lord. Now, Eli was there. Uh, Eli was, has been mentioned already. The sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, are serving as priests of the Lord at this point. Eli is evidently too old, according to the law, to serve as a priest. But he has a position of honor, as is right, and oversight there. He's seated uh, outside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. In verse 10, Hannah is deeply distressed and she's praying to the Lord and she's weeping bitterly. Uh, the language is, is graphic there. The language is forceful for a reason. Uh, this woman is weeping as she prays. She is desperate. In verse 11, she vows a vow and says to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, if you will in indeed look on the affliction of your servant, and remember me, not forget your servant, but will give your servant a son. Then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. I, I think it's right for us to understand the text is portraying Hannah as an example here. This vow that she makes, this is not a bargain with the Lord. No, this is a, this is a plea. This is a promise. This is a commitment that she is making. She's not doing what you know, far too many middle schoolers do in the, in the face of a pop quiz and say, oh, if you'll help me out of this situation, I'll never X again. Or I'll always Y again. It's not that kind of thing. Uh, Hannah, Hannah, this is not a last minute sort of prayer. This is Hannah really, as she's going to say, she's pouring out her heart before the Lord. It's an earnest sort of prayer that she's praying. She says, no razor shall touch his head. She's probably referring to a Nazarite vow there, that, that he would be in a special way dedicated to the Lord, given to him. If the Lord gave her a son, he would not be her son, but she would render him to the Lord. Now, verse 12, evidently she goes on for some time. She's praying before the Lord and praying silently in her heart. Eli observes her. This woman out, right outside the door of the temple, uh, weeping. She's kind of a mess. Her mouth is moving, but it doesn't hear any words. Uh, Eli misinterprets and thinks that she's drunk. Uh, which may sound odd, but given the circumstances, not all that drunk. Remember, uh, not all that odd. People were feasting at this time, right? They came up for the sacrifice. And, uh, and as again, as is far too often the case, especially in times of spiritual declension among God's people, what's supposed to be a gathering together for worship ends up being an occasion for sin. And that's what the golden calf was all about, you remember. Right. And in these days, oftentimes, evidently, according to the, the histories, that when God's people gathered together to offer their sacrifices and to worship, and they had these big feasts, there was alcoholic beverages at these feasts and people uh, imbibed too much and so the 
a, a drunken woman out on the street corner uh, after one of these sacrificial feasts was not all that uncommon uh, of a sight to see. And, uh, and Eli evidently has encountered people in this situation before because he responds with this uh, very clear uh, rebuke to her. He doesn't mince words at all. How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. <clears throat> to the point. Well, uh, Hannah corrects him. He's misinterpreted. She is not drunk. Verse 15, she says, No, my Lord. I am a woman troubled in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. She's not been pouring wine down her throat, as, she is, as he assumes. She has rather been pouring out her heart before the Lord in earnest prayer in the midst of real pain. I think it is worth noting here, just as we're, as we're going by, that for all the stereotypes and misunderstandings about an old, the Old Testament God, here he's engaged in a very personal conversation with a woman in desperate straits right outside the door of his temple. Evidently, for a prolonged period of time, she pours out her soul to him in prayer. And I think we rightly assume, well, we see it in the text, she had his ear. Right? We know of God's holiness. We know of Him dwelling in unapproachable light. We know of His, his law requiring priests that His people might approach Him. We know of the, of the sacrificial system. All of that is true, and yet in the midst of all of that, here is one desperate woman who can hardly bring herself to speak. A woman who is, in this society, uh, very much in the position of an outcast, no matter how much money her husband might have had. She was from out in the sticks. She didn't have any children. She couldn't have any children, and she was in a desperate way. And she was hounded even in her own household by it. And her husband probably instead of listening her, listening to her, is trying to explain to her why she shouldn't be so sad. And she goes to the temple to pour out her heart before the Lord. And she finds the Lord to listen to her. Uh, that's who the God of the Old Testament is. The God of the New Testament. The God of heaven and earth. Right? This is what a holy God does in His humility. He listens to people when they pray. Now, Eli, rebuked by her rebuke, withdraws his rebuke, and he blesses her. Eli answered, well, go in peace, then, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you've made to him. As hard-hearted as Eli was at this point, and as blind to spiritual matters, he had not forgot how to be a priest. He gives the woman a benediction and sends her on the way. <clears throat> and she said, Respectfully, let your servant find favor in your eyes. And then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Now, she responds graciously to him, and she gets up and she goes, and she is comforted. And again, I think there is a little bit of a lesson for us there as well. 
She's not had her prayer answered yet. And yet she has some relief having prayed, doesn't she? She has poured out her soul before the Lord. She has been heard. And so she goes back and she can eat. Her face is no longer sad. There is a ministry that God gives us simply in hearing our prayers. Even if the answer to our petitions is no or not yet, there is still ministry to the soul to be done when we pray. There's a, there's a bluegrass song that I think about often uh, called, I'll talk it all over with him. You may have heard this. Right? The refrain is, I'm going to talk it all over with him. And it's a reference to prayer. Whatever is happening in my life, whatever kind of desperate situation is going on, well, I'm going to go and talk it over with my Lord. I'm going to go bend his ear again. And oh, he's happy to have his ear bent and to listen to me. I'm going to talk it over with him. And that ministers to my soul, friends. Sometimes when I've had a particularly difficult encounter, uh, I like to tell, you know, Pat's in the office here. I like to tell Pat, I'm going to be out, but I'm not leaving but I'm going to be out. I'm going to go down in the field. I'm going to go down in the woods. And I'm going down there to talk it over with him. Right? I don't expect a miraculous deliverance in the moment, but I need to talk with him. I need to pour out my soul before him. And oftentimes I can come back to the building with my face no longer sad. Right? Because I have walked with my Lord and I've unburdened my heart before him. That's what Hannah does. Now, verses 19 and 20 they rise early in the morning, they worship before the Lord that morning, and then they make their trek back home to Ramah. And the Lord grants Hannah's request. She conceives and she bears a child. Now, verse 21, well, she names him Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. And his name means something along the lines of, I've asked or the Lord hears. She recognizes, now, this is not a coincidence. I prayed and the Lord heard me. And look at this child. Now, having been given the desire of her heart, uh, kind of surprisingly given human nature, Hannah's intention is to keep her vow. In verses 21 to 23 here, we discover that she plans to dedicate him to the Lord to serve as a priest there. Uh, Elkanah and all his house are going back up to, to offer sacrifices, as was their plan. The time came for an annual trip, and she says she's going to stay home until the child is weaned, um, probably three years-ish. Right? It says the child's young when he, when he goes before the Lord later in the chapter here. She intends to keep her vow, and Elkanah goes along with this. According to the Old Testament Scriptures, according to Numbers chapter 30 specifically, Elkanah could have undermined his wife's vow. He could have nullified it. Uh, but he does not. And uh, he, he validates the vow that she has made. He agrees and joins her. Which, uh, it's easy to, to skip right over it, but that must have been costly for Elkanah. I mean, this was the firstborn son of his beloved wife. You remember what kind of trouble Jacob got into over his love for his firstborn son of his beloved wife. Right? How near and dear to his heart 
he was. And here, Elkanah is willing for this child to go according to the vow. Now, verse 24, the time comes when she'd weaned him. Again, probably three years old. She fulfills the vow. She takes him up to the temple knowing that he's not going to be coming home on the return trip. Now, you've got to imagine. Imagine a three-year-old, right? I mean, my, uh, my son River is three. Right? Uh, Mr. Squishy, as we call him at our house. Right? Three years old. He, the, the boy surely did not understand what was happening. Didn't understand the bags being packed the way they were. Didn't understand the goodbyes that were being said. But his mother intends to keep the vow she's made before the Lord. This gift that she has been given, she intends to give it right back as an act of worship, as an act of faithfulness. And she does. And you know she knew what kind of priests Hophni and Phinehas were. She knew what kind of a man Eli was. You know, those kind of repu- even without social media, those kind of reputations got around. I think that we see the Scriptures are portraying Hannah and Elkanah here not as an example of parental prudence necessarily, but as an example of faith in the Lord. They entrust themselves to Him who judges justly. She did what she had vowed, and she gave that which was most precious to her, to her God. She's a, she accompanies Him with this generous gift of the, the three-year-old bull, the flower, the wine, but really it's the boy who's the sacrifice a living sacrifice. She comes before Eli. She reports to him. She reminds him, I'm that woman that was here. And I prayed. And just like you said, the Lord heard my prayer. And and here's this boy. She explains simply to him, God heard me and did as I asked, and now I will do as I said. It is a loss for her. It's a loss for Elkanah in that way. Oh, but it is for Israel's gain. Because you know what the Lord will do with this boy. You know the kind of revival that he's going to bring about. He, in fact, he is going to, he's going to begin to establish his kingdom through this servant. He's going to have a man who listens to him and is faithful to him and serves him. God is going to deliver his people in a profound way through this boy in part. And that is foreshadowed the way the chapter ends here. And he worshiped the Lord there. Now, I want to I give us four brief lessons from this text. Things that we can learn as we consider this situation with Hannah. And the first one is that the Lord often humbles those He intends to bless. Well, actually, I'll say the Lord always humbles those He intends to bless. I think we can make it universal like that. Hannah is a mighty example of faith. Her faithfulness here, the way that she approaches the Lord, even the way she addresses Him. She speaks the covenant name of God again and again. And Eli turns around and says, The God of Israel can bless you in the most general terms. This is a devout woman. And a woman through whom God is going to do a profound work. But she was brought through a profound trial and experienced some profound suffering. Brought to a place of real helplessness, of 
desperation, even humiliation, so that in that state she might call upon the Lord. And I want to remind you all that that is often God's purposes. To bring His people low through trial, through suffering, in order that He might use them for His glory, use them for the good of His people, and so that He might bless them. Uh, Martin Luther talked about this as the theology of the cross, that the glory of God must be mediated through suffering, lest we be ruined by our pride. If we're going to know Him, if we're going to be used by Him, if we're going to be blessed by Him, we have got to be humbled so that we can receive the gift of God's work in our lives. And friends, this is the state for, for us in the church as He uses us and blesses us. But it is also very much the state for everyone who will know God in Jesus Christ and be saved. There is a degree of humbling there is a degree of lowering. There is a degree of suffering that must come along with this. Hannah was, was barren, and that was the source of so much of her suffering in life. But in some ways, the very first step of responding to the gospel is recognizing that we are spiritually barren, isn't it? For the sake of time, we won't look at the text, but in in Isaiah chapter 5, the, the whole point the Lord makes of this great the song of the vineyard that He gives is that I, I blessed My people like a vineyard. I tilled the soil. I fertilized. I sowed the seed. And I expected a harvest of good wine. And I received wild grapes, bitter fruit from them. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1 says really that's the state of all mankind. God, who was known to them, who, who made Himself known to them, yet they did not honor Him or praise Him. He who blessed them so profoundly, they returned to Him not the good fruit of worship, but the bitter fruit of selfishness and self-righteousness and animosity towards Him. Where there should be life in us, there is only death. That's what Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 is about. That's the painful truth about us. And the gospel calls us to acknowledge that as painful as it is. The world denies that. Pretends that we are all fine. Pretends that all is well, that we're good enough or we're getting good enough. If you read the right books and do the right things or whatever it is, you will improve yourself. And over the long haul, I mean, that's what you know, the, the utopian myth is all about. Over the long haul, we're going to improve ourselves right into heaven on earth, little by little. Despite what history says. That's our plan, at least. And far too much of this gets into the church, seeps into the, into the cracks. I, uh, there is a Christian radio station here in town that has a billboard up. Uh, at least it was up a few months ago on Elm Avenue, not far from my house when you're crossing the interstate. And the billboard said, it had the name of the radio station, and it had in very large letters, it said, you are not enough. And then it had the word not marked out. That's the message that they were, you are enough. You're good enough. Now, I'll, I'll, I'll say this because she's not here tonight. Sweet Eliza Dowdy, who is, I think Eliza is 11, 
Eliza saw that billboard, asked her parents to get her the email for the Christian radio station and sent them an email and saying, you've misunderstood the gospel. <laughs> now, I checked in with them tonight. At, at this moment, they have not yet responded to her, but I'll keep you updated. <laughs> but Eliza recognized the gospel of Jesus Christ does not say, you are enough. It says you're not enough. Oh, but good news. You are more beloved than you could have imagined that you were. And you who were not enough, God will forgive your sins and redeem you. But it begins with a realization that you are not enough. And you need to be redeemed in the first place. It begins with some humbling. It begins with some pain in that way. The gospel takes us in a different direction than you are enough. This is why Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes begin with blessed are the poor in spirit. Christianity is not a pattern of positive thinking. In fact, there are some, some very negative thoughts involved in coming to the truth about ourselves because the Lord humbles those that He intends to bless. Friends, have you ever been there? Have you been there recently? Humbled by the realization that you are not enough. Not enough for your current circumstances. You are not who you imagined that you would be. You know, I, like I said, I'm, I've said to you all before, I'm 37 years old. My peer group is like rushing towards an early midlife crisis because all, everybody my age is realizing this is not what I expected. Time is moving by rapidly. I have not accomplished what I expected to accomplish. I do not know what's going on, and I'm panicking about it. Right? And for, for some of us, this is a, a new realization. But this is what God in His mercy has said through the gospel all along. You're not as competent as you thought you were. You're not as good as you thought you were. Matt White has testified before the church that the, the means that God used to break his heart and open his eyes to the truth of the cross was when Tim Martin looked at him and said, no, Matt, you're not a good person. Right? And Matt heart, Matt's heart broke and was healed at the cross of Jesus Christ. The Lord humbles those He intends to bless. That should inform the way that we pray the way that we pray in our own lives, the way we pray for others around us, the way we pray for our children, should inform the way we view suffering. Now, I'm going to speed up dramatically at this point. The second lesson that I want to point out to you is that true faith is often messy, but it is earnest. In Hannah's pain, she was brought to a place of real desperation. <coughs> I mean, she was crying out for mercy before the Lord. And she couldn't even speak audible words in the process. She was, in other words, she was not giving a well-thought-out theological treatise there on her face outside the temple. She was not engaged in a formal ceremony where she was rendering, you know, she, nothing like that. She was a weeping, blubbering woman who was mistaken for somebody who was knocked down drunk. And she was willing to be so. She was willing to be mocked. She was willing to be thought of 
as foolish. And I think that there is a lesson for us. I won't go into detail here, uh, but I want to point that out to you. The true response of faith is not necessarily something very well thought out with all the right T's crossed and I's dotted. It is an earnest cry of the heart. Oh God, save me. I've got to have you. If you don't rescue me, I will die. That's what faith says. In Luke chapter 18, in the beginning of that chapter, we have the tax collector there and the Pharisee in the account Jesus, the story Jesus tells. The tax collector is the one beating his breast. He won't even look up to heaven. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Mocked by the Pharisee who's praying. But that's real faith, Jesus says. Later in that very same chapter, as Jesus is, is walking down the road, you have the blind man Bartimaeus calling out to him, Son of David, have mercy on me. And the people say, Shut, stop, stop. And he just yells all the louder. Oh, have mercy on me. They say, you're not doing it right. And who cares? Right? Bartimaeus wasn't doing it right. The tax collector wasn't doing it right. Hannah's not doing it right. She's blubbering outside the temple, mistaken for a drunk person. But she's sincere. She means it. Oh, friends, do not think about your own faith and, and scrutinize every bit of it and say, am I doing it right? Am I saying the right words? Have I believed in the right way? As if God is some great Rubik's Cube. You've got to get all the little squares in order for Him to bless you. It's not like that. Cry out to Him. Remember the prodigal son. His father didn't even let him finish his speech. He doesn't care about the speech. He cares that he came home. That's the point. That's what real faith is. We see it in Hannah. Have you cried out like that? Like He's your only hope? Okay, the third point I want to make, God's deliverance here is beyond what was asked for, beyond what was imagined. The Lord hears and He has mercy and He provides this child. You know, friends, like I said early on here, uh, Hannah is, is very much an arrow pointing ahead to Mary. Is very much an arrow pointing ahead to a greater deliverance that would be given. Samuel was way beyond what Hannah, I'm sure, was imagining. God did a profound work through him, though I'm sure for Hannah, having him taken from her was like a sword pierced her heart. But in due time, the Lord would provide a, the child for all of us. Through another poor, humble, rural woman through Mary. He would give this gift. And a gift that would save us all. A true deliverer. Not just to turn the tide for a moment in Israel, but to turn the tide for all eternity. And what a blessing it was that this child was given to that woman and then taken from her. But given. Given for all of us. Israel was delivered through Samuel, and so we are all delivered through Jesus Christ. We come to Him in faith. His righteousness is ours. Our death is His. His life is ours. And He lives today and will come again. The returning Lord will call us brothers and sisters and will mean it on that final day. That's the blessing that God has given through Jesus Christ. Far more than what could have been expected or imagined. A gift beyond the need beyond the pain, beyond the wildest hope 
is what we've been given in Christ. And the gift is already given. And the last point I want to make to you, and I'll make this very briefly because of the time. We see in Hannah also that the right response to deliverance is to give. To give in trust to the Lord. It is, a, it is an amazing thing. I could, there could be a whole other sermon about this. Maybe, there, maybe I will preach another sermon about this. But the fact that Hannah receives this gift from the Lord, this baby, and then she turns right around and gives it right back to him. There is a profound picture of discipleship there. You and I, who had no life before the Lord Jesus Christ came to us, He has given us a new life. It is a glorious thing for us to turn right back around and say, all right, well, it's yours. I didn't have it before. You gave it to me. And now that you've given it to me, there's nothing more that I'd rather do than give it back to you. There is a, there is a picture of obedience for us to give our very lives, to give that precious gift we needed so badly we were desperate for, to render it back to Him. And it is a gift well given. Imagine Hannah giving this, this precious little boy at the temple. This boy that meant so much to her. Very much like Abraham. Right? Taking his son up on the mountain. I'm willing to give it, Lord. Right? That is what faith looks like. And it's what faith looks like for us in discipleship. Oh God, you've given me my life. I'll give it freely to you. Because I trust you. So friends, as we close here, consider this woman. Consider what an unlikely candidate she was for God to bless in the way that he did. And yet, he did. And so are we, as unlikely as we might be. God is pleased to bless those who come to him. And consider this merciful God who has such kindness for this woman. He is the same God that we call out to. So friends, take a look at yourself. Take a look at him. Call out to Him as this, this woman did. And the gift that we receive, give it back freely. Our lives to Him and genuine discipleship. We will see Him face to face soon enough. Well, let's, uh, let's pray together now. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the kindness that you showed Hannah that day. We thank you for hearing her prayer. And we thank you that you have not changed. And we thank you that you, you bless us in unlikely ways and you call unlikely servants. And you bless so freely, as we see in the Scriptures here. Oh, help us to believe, we pray. And help us to give ourselves freely to you in return. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.